You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John DeYard. Welcome to the Life Spa podcast. And today we have a really special guest, a dear, dear friend of mine. Her name is Swami Jayadevi. She's a urban yoga monk. She has been running the yoga center called Kashi Atlanta for 25 years. She just wrote an amazing book called Embodied. Uh, an urban yogi's memoir and manifesto for modern living. Um, I just finished reading this book and, uh, you know, we're all on a journey, right? This is all about us, you know, you know, letting who we truly are out. I always say the Ayurveda of you is the Ayur's life, Veda's truth. It's your truth, how to let the truth of you out. And I got to tell you that Swami Jayadevi has lived many lifetimes in this life, in this life. Um, and all of her experiences to get where she is today. Um, you know, we've all been through uh, versions of them and she guides you with, with uh, mindfulness practices that are really actually well backed by science that are amazing. Her stories are deep. They, you know, they'll touch every bone and cell in your body. I highly re recommend the book Embodied. I'm super grateful to have have her here with us. Wami Jayadevi, it's great to be with you. Great to see you again. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. I'm so happy to see you. Uh, um, yeah, really, really happy to be here and to share this body of work. You know, it, it took me a while to really uh, complete it, but it was one of my one of my COVID projects where I was like, okay, now I'm super. You know, it was such a contracted time that. Um, that's a, that's what I did with my contracted time was finish the book. <laughs> that's a perfect time. I know when I uh, I had a building burned down years ago, our, my Ayurveda clinic burned down. I had no job, I had no building. So I wrote a book. It was a great thing to do when there's nothing to do, you know, uh, it's great. I love it. And the book that you wrote is so deep story after story. Oh, my gosh, what you've been through. You know, I you know, asking you the question why you wrote this book, um, you know, you know, maybe a good, maybe that's the one question, but, um, you know, you've shared so much. And I guess my, the better question is, you know, what are we, what are you trying to accomplish with this book? What are you trying to deliver for the reader when writing this book? A great question. Um, I think that I am trying to deliver the, that all of us have, mm -hmm an ability to do this work and to live the life of a yogi, whether you consider yourself a yogi or not. Um, I think those of us who are seeking to live authentically and to live that true version of who we are, to live with our heart open, that we need some tools, we need some practices to put into place to, to help mm -hmm. us peel back the layers that block us from expressing that deep consciousness. And so more than anything else, I, I thought, you know, in the contraction of COVID and in the isolation, um, I thought, well, you know, I'm a teacher. I love to share and teach. I love to help inspire people and touch people much like you do. Um, but I thought, well, you know, we went to an online platform like everyone else during COVID, but um, I just, I was just looking for a different tool to use for myself to share some of these deeper teachings. And like I said, I had been working kind of in the background on this book for a while, but, um, you know, the, the, uh, quarantine of COVID really made me go, look, I could do something with this time. You know, it's a, it's a rare thing in our world right now to have this capsule of time. Um, so I, you know, I, my nature is to help, is to help inspire people to figure out how to get out of whatever, or not even to get out of, but to transform, to kind of use everything as fuel to love more and to embody more love in the world. And so that this book was born of that effort. You know, there's a, um, <clears throat> an author way back in the early 1900s, his name was Henry, Henry James, and he wrote this thing that the three most important things in life are, number one, to be kind, 
Number two, to be kind. And number three, to be kind. Uh, Mr. Rogers picked up on that and used that exactly in his teaching. And I have to say that reading this book and knowing who you are, to me, that's what this book is really about, is like you are so kind. There is, like you said, there's no throwaway people. You care for everyone. Am I right? We've known each other for years and I've worked with you for years. And the story that stays in my head, and I don't know if this is accurate because it wasn't in your book, that at one point, this could be completely in my head, I might have made this up, but I'm going to throw it out there and tell me if I'm right or wrong. Okay. But at one point in your life, you were homeless. And, at, and, and, then, and, then, and then when you finally found your way into an ashram and became a monk, that you started giving back and making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and bringing them to the homeless people and the places where you knew those people and you cared for them. And you still do that to this day. Is that accurate? Uh, it's accurate that we still run a street relief program in, in Atlanta, but it's not accurate that I was homeless. My brother, my closest brother was homeless, and he okay. went on and off the streets for most of my life. Oh, and you would um, go help him. You would go serve him. That's, that's what right. like, Okay. That's what sparked that whole thing was, oh, I was always trying to find him, always trying to pull him up. And mm. yeah. Yeah. So his yeah. story, that story is in the book. Um, yeah. I remember that yeah, about that that whole relationship uh so yeah yeah but it was definitely one of the defining relationships in my life where it was like look trying to help somebody that's really uh kind of dancing on the edge of disaster all the time i mean that's one of the reasons that the teachings like you know how to how to practice the art of non-reaction and how to live as the eye of the storm how important equanimity is midst of that kind of chaos um so yeah no absolutely absolutely the the thing about kindness you know is like you know it's like to be kind is one thing we get that everybody gets that but then the second thing most important thing in life to be kind again that's like whoa how do you do that and then to do it again for the third thing is like you're talking about i'm just going to be kind whether people are nice to me or not i'm a doormat you know how do i not become that doormat and i think that what you teach is like the power is in the kindness and the 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 and you give strategies real life strategies of how to allow yourself you know to to be like you said equanimity and non-judgment non-judgmental and and you know i i just wonder if you could talk about how because a lot of people are like you know i'm not gonna just let them run over me and if i'm kind and you know and i get that a lot like and it's not about that but how can you help people understand how to be kind, but also you're, you're actually strong and you're invincible and you're weatherproof from the ups and downs in life and all that? I really do think that that embodiment of equanimity is one of the most powerful things that we can achieve or, you know, really, really be because, you know, because I think because of how I grew up, I grew up with a lot of adversity and a lot, uh, I was stepped on a lot in our family, in my family and just in society and stuff. And, and being a doormat is something I would never bow to. And I think part of that, it's like when you develop that kind of strength by that repeated, um, you know, misuse of power by other people misusing power against you. I think it can become sort of a tensile strength, almost like how we forge steel, right? It's like you become forged by rising up and saying, even, even in this, even in the world the way it is now, your hatred is not strong enough to make me let go of my love. And that is badass, right? That's the ability to be able to say, even with this torrent of negativity coming towards me, I'm still not going to let go of what I know is the strongest thing about me, which is my ability to love. Um, and so I think it's that, right, that that's where that kindness comes from. That's where, um, you know, I think there, there's a way to have a combination of being street smart and loving. And that that's what we need now. We need to be able to not let take people take advantage of us, but to not relinquish 
the authentic part of who, who I am, which is love. I'm never, I'm not going to relinquish it. You know, I'll be clutching it in my, in my bony little hand of my last breath saying, nope, I'm still not letting go of this. So is that something that you, did you always have that care and compassion and that love? Is that something that you were born with and you grew up with, even though you grew up with a really a lot of diversity and a lot of trauma and a lot of hardship in your life? Was that something you always had or is that something that you were able to develop? Because a lot of people don't have it. They don't have it instantly, but they, and they're trying to figure, well, how am I ever going to get to that? I mean, you know, you know, it's a, people have this survival thing going big and strong, push back, fight back, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I actually think all of us have it, but it's exactly what you just said. Can, are there tools we can use to develop it? That's part of why I wrote this book. Yes, there are. It's part of why I think both you and I do the work that we do, because we know there are tools. We know there are practices that can uh, peel off those layers of trauma and harm and belief system, right? Even when those things get in so deeply to us, into our belief systems, I believe that that true essence of open-hearted awareness, that consciousness of who we are is there in all of us. And even though it might be more covered over in other people, um, you know, in, in just not other people, but different layers and levels of that, I think that our ability to find our way out of that is inherent in all of us. And, you know, through all the different trainings with people that I've offered and done, I see it over and over again. I see you do too. I see, we see people come in with all this suffering and pain. And one of the things that I love to do is teach people how to change their relationship with their suffering. And it's not even that the suffering goes away immediately, but the identification as the one who's being hurt or the one who's suffering, it can be just such a subtle shift to move that to one side and say, okay, my suffering is happening, but I am not my suffering. There's something deeper to me than just the pain that I experience. Now, how do I connect to that? How do I find my way to that? and start to make it bigger? How do I start to do these practices so much that they get bigger than the pain? They kind of rise up over the pain. And then I can start to make a conscious choice in a moment when the, the suffering is inflicted instead of holding it for years and having to go through these arduous processes to get rid of it again. Um, you know, that's part of that skill in action. When the Bhagavad Gita says yoga is skill in action, it's that skillfulness is also part of why I wrote the book. I was like, we need to be able to use simple practices to get more skillful in how we navigate our suffering and the suffering of the world. You know, what you just said, I think is so powerful. And I don't think people believe that something as subtle as a shift can be so powerful. And, and uh, I think your book really makes the case that it actually is really powerful. Um, and, you know, in Ayurveda, one of my favorite concepts that I sort of learned over the years is that the more subtle it is, the more powerful it is. Like the microbiome, we can't see them, little bugs, but they run everything you know, our circadian rhythms, which are Nobel Prize winning science, we can't see them. Most people can't even feel them, but they're there and they're governing your biological clocks every day, every second of every day. So this thing about being this more subtle thing, being the most powerful, you know, when you read your book, you realize that that's what the whole book is about. It's about the subtle and you make a really strong case. It's really interesting because I'm, I just did a keynote talk for the Ayurveda conference down in Tucson about a month ago. And the whole talk was about the gap, you know, the gap between thoughts, the gap between seasons, the gap between consciousness and matter, and how Ayurveda says that the cause of disease is when the, the field, the consciousness becomes physiology and the physiology forgets that is part of that field. And at that junction point, it said that that's where the mistake of the intellect takes place. And you write, this whole book is really about the gap, about your journey into the gap and how you can get into that gap and you can widen it. Just like you said, you get in there and you realize that I'm not the victim. 
you know, I'm not the one being hurt. I'm, there is this experience of being hurt, but something deep inside of me is not that. And so I wonder if you could just kind of go off on, you know, how people can kind of piggyback on your on your information to get in there and find that gap and that and find the power of that gap to be separate from the field, which means from the trauma and, you know, and realize that that there are two things going on there. And that's the key, which is so subtle, you can just kind of drive by it, and not even notice it your whole life. Very true. Um, do you know the British saying mind the gap? No, there's a there's a there's signs all over the tube in London that say mind the gap because it's the gap between the train and the platform like don't step <laughs> into the gap. I always love that saying, mind the gap, right? I it's love like, that. Yeah, mind the gap because <laughs> I, right? Yeah, nobody believe, even knows what that means. I walk by thousands of people all day long and you and right. I going, oh my God, the gap, yeah. yeah. Mind yeah. the gap, right? But it's that gap. I mean, on the one hand, you could say that's the gap that, you know, yoga means to yoke, to, to, to yoke back together into wholeness or to yoke consciousness to matter, to yoke our personal consciousness to the higher consciousness. Um, so you could say that that dualistic quality of two experiences, you know, that that's that skill to bring it together through the practices. But I actually think the gap, like if we fall into the gap and we get caught in reactivity, we cause more suffering for ourselves and the other people. But if we mind the gap, if we really start to pay attention to what, what could happen in that gap, it is the gap of our own transformation. Even though it seems like, okay, I just got insulted or belittled or wounded in some way. If I take a conscious breath and I let myself feel the impact of that and try to access kindness or consciousness or or even just like, I think when you first start to do these kind of practices, it's just the ability to not react that is your first strength. Just the ability to not lash out. Um, one of the, the sub chapters in my book is called The Bigger Asshole. Because, you know, as you can tell already, I like to curse. As a Swami, I think there's no, there's no rules against cursing. Um, but there's a tendency in us, if somebody was a jerk to us, to out jerk them, right? To somehow say, oh, well, we're gonna throw down. I'm gonna be a bigger jerk than you. And now you've got two jerks in the room and you think that's a way to resolve the problem. Mm -hmm. And it's like the worst choice that anybody could ever make is to say, let's put two people inflamed and angry side by side or face to face and see how it goes. So I think that skill in action says, well, what is a different choice? I could walk away from it. I could take a breath and stand back from it. Um, one of my favorite sayings that I share some of this in the book is from the Quaker tradition is um, I refuse to be enemies with you. And yeah, I, I love, love that when you said that in the book, I love that. That was so powerful. Yeah. Because no matter what, I'm not, no matter how awful you are, I'm going to let you stay in your awfulness, yeah. but I'm not going to be awful back that you're not that powerful. I'm more powerful than you. If I can actually stay aligned with truth, that's me being authentic to who I am instead of giving my truth over to you because you're being such a jerk. And so I think, you know, if you think about somebody being enemies with you, it's like they're on the other side of the table and you're going to try to negotiate something. But I like to ask people to be brave enough, be street smart enough to know when you can do this, but to slide around to the side of the table that your enemy is on and look at the problem as the problem instead of the other person as the problem. And that's where real transformation can happen. You're sitting beside them going, look, we have a problem. We together have an issue, not you are my problem. And so I think that when we start to navigate that gap, if we can look at it as a gap of empowerment and a gap of transformation, that's where it gets really juicy, where you start to go, oh, okay. Like, what if I could navigate this conflict and we could come out with a positive outcome instead of just two inflamed, angry people. 
it changes something for everyone. It changes our internal experience, but it also changes our experience in relationship with other people. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a gap of opportunity. If you stay there before you act, you have the option to act based on them or an opportunity to act based on what's really you. But if you don't you know, have the awareness of that space before action, you're sort of just locked into the same repetitive pattern that you've done a million times again and again and again. I always use the analogy of the rose, like roses were edible, edible, and they get they got trampled and eaten for millions of years. And then <clears throat> because they were constantly getting trampled, the roses finally, one of the roses said, you know what, this is ridiculous. We get, no, the picker bushes never get trampled. They never, you know, we're getting trampled left and right. What if we don't have thorns? What if we just got to eliminate the thorns? You know, so they all said, whoa, that's crazy. So they took a vote and they voted, you know, and they, um, they, they, if they had some thorns, they wouldn't get some trampled because originally they didn't have the thorns. So, so now they have thorns and they don't get trampled, right? And that's what happens with people, right? When they get trampled, they grow thorns and they become thorny and you interact with them and they, ah, it's not fun. They're, they're, they feel, you, they, you feel like they're your instant enemy. And when you look at that gap of that, that space, which is a beautiful way you, you write about it in the book, you know, is that it gives you the opportunity to look and see why are they thorny? You know, instead of, you know, if someone's thorny and they throw darts at you and they hurt you, you can throw darts back, like you said, make a bigger asshole. You just made, you made them more hurt. So you're going to expect more darts. If you abandon them, run away, check out and say, I'm not going to be around you. They're going to feel abandoned. So they're going to be more mean and angry and so on. And we have a lot of that happening in our culture with gun violence. And now people are angry, never were heard, never really. But if you understand through the window of compassion and understanding why they did that, and realize that if you do, if you react to them, you're doing them. So you're engaging in behavior based on the stress that they're, that they've experienced, that they're projecting as their armor and their protector. So you're reacting in behavior based on their armor and their stress and their trauma. It's not you, it's not even them. It's a version of them that's all protected and armored up. So how do you do you? You have to look through the window of compassion and understanding and realize that I need to let their stuff go by and respond with love and affection and compassion. And in that regard, you widen the gap, right? You get to that place where you get to really experience, wow, I can take action from this space. If I just slow down for a minute and be aware of the fact that when I'm doing them and when I'm doing me. And I think that, you know, and you give so many really cool, um, you know, mindfulness, based cognitive therapy techniques that are powerfully backed by science like you know i used to think years ago that you know guided meditation I'm like all right you know because i was steeped in the tradition where you meditate you shut your mouth you don't say anything nobody talks to you because you're doing your thing right and now all the science is coming about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy where the science is amazing on how if someone guides you or you guide yourself through these meditations where with breath and everything coordinated it's incredibly powerful, scientifically documented. So when you read this book and you go through these exercises, I want you to take them very seriously because they're backed by good science. It's not just like someone guiding you some, on some emotional roller coaster ride of through, them, through the pretty valleys with the flowers. This is transformational stuff and it's backed by science. People should know that. I, and, um, but anyway, if you could kind of, I want to, I like to blast this whole thing open because I think that's what you said, where it starts is in your reaction, not in, in reactivity. And if you can give us more tools of how you can kind of stop that instant reactivity, because we all do it, we jump to judgment, you know, so quickly. And um, in this culture, more than ever, we're, you know, we don't even think twice before we're in, we're in judgment and reaction and dangerously so. Well, one of the, uh... One of the skills that you and I, you know, one of the things that I think you and I clicked immediately about was the power of the breath. And when you can link breath and awareness together, when it's not just daily breathing in, breathing out, nobody's paying attention to it, breathing thousands of times a day. But when you start to go, oh, wait a second, if I just felt something really deeply, if I can take that deep breath and ask and get curious 
about, well, why am I reacting and why are they reacting? And, you know, if there's more room in that, then there can be a different kind of dialogue. There can be creativity and collaboration and all kinds of different things you can pull from so many different tools. But it is exactly what you said. It's the, it's the breath, I think, that starts to widen the gap, is that the more deep breaths you can take in that moment, the more potential and possibility you create for yourself, is that when you go, oh, okay, if, if somebody just wounded me, is it a red flag? And what's the red flag for? Like if I, if I habitually think, oh, I, got, I, got, I just took a hit, there's the red flag, I'm supposed to hit back. Part of what we're trying to do with these tools, right, that the book is divided into 10 different tools of transformation is to be able to say, well, what's going to serve me the best here? Is it the art of non-reaction? Is it that idea that, um, you know, if I take a deep breath, I can make a conscious choice? Um, Is it, you know, even things like, can I use this moment to grow? right? It's a whole different idea to say, can I use a moment where I'm feeling crunchy? I'm feeling angry. What if I, it's that perspective shift, right? What if I can shift my perspective? And I think part of that is detachment, right? One of the tools is detachment. And when I was writing the book, my editors teased me about how many stories I had for the detachment chapter, because it was my worst thing, right? That I would get attached more than detached attachment is where we you know we love and we hold people really closely and we start to cling too tightly to people or experiences or objects or things or promotions or followers right we can get attached to so many different things and that defines our self-worth but when we can practice detachment and one of my favorite definitions of detachment is unconditional love that detachment actually teaches us to love with an open hand and to say, I can be in love all the time, right? It doesn't have to be about an object or an acquisition or an accomplishment, that that's that perspective change, that if I am indeed love, then I can embody that as the truth of who I am and be a little bit more detached about my experiences in the world. I can, and by, by detached, I mean, I can be in unconditional love, even if somebody really just hurt me, you know, I can still make a choice to show up with that detachment. I think one of the things we get attached to so intensely is our suffering. And that's kind of a wild conversation to have. I would love to have it with you, John, because, you know, our work that, you know, is to kind of help people release the suffering so that they can be more identified. All of us can be more identified with our truth, with that true essence. And I think that that stance of detachment, I just think it's so empowering to be able to say um, even if, if someone else is discarding me, right? We started with that statement. This is a statement that the book starts with. There are no throwaway people. Um, that, that even if in a moment I feel like I'm being discarded or thrown away, it's not true. Even if someone else is doing that to me, yeah. the truth is I'm not a throwaway person. I'm a valid, lovable, dynamic, creative, wild being like all the other dynamic, wild, creative beings. So how can I believe in myself enough to, to continue that stance, that detached stance that says, you just criticized me, but my self-worth doesn't belong to you. Right, that that's part of why we need skills. We need to develop tools to bolster our self-worth to the point where we know we're lovable even when someone else doesn't love us. I mean, that's really detachment is to be able to say, yeah, okay, you didn't love me or this relationship didn't work out. Okay, that's okay. That's, I'm still okay. You know, one of, one of my first spiritual teachers said to me, he said that um, the pain and the fear is directly across from the bliss. And the reason for the pain and the fear is to get your attention. So you can go to the pain 
and through the pain and then access who you truly are and then let who you truly are out. So we have live in a culture where if you feel pain, we do everything we can to numb it. You go to the doctor, they give you an antidepressant and, and, and a pain pill or whatever it is. And everything we do is try to not feel pain, sort of like the world of diet, my big pet peeve. I don't feel good when I eat wheat, so I don't eat it. I don't eat this, I don't eat that. Now the list of things we're not allowed to eat has gotten so long that we keep kicking the real problem, which is you can't digest much of anything down the road until you've compromised your immunity, which is a whole other story. And then you end up being vulnerable to infection and a whole bunch of things that I've written about. The point is, is we keep trying to kick the can, real can down the road, which means become present, become really aware of why you're in pain, what's the pain is, and gently go to it and see if, like you said, my self-worth isn't there. My self-worth is a mental construct that says, because of that hurt, I am X, but through that hurt, you're Y. You're, you're, you're whole and you've never been unwhole. And, and I think we, we run away from the pain because it just hurts and nobody likes it. You know, and I remember when I first got dumped on my first girlfriend for like the quarterback on the football team, and I was like really like brokenhearted, you know, and, and I went up to my room and my mom, who's a really spiritual teacher, she's amazing. She said, I, I was like, you're like in tears and crying. And she said, just get some rest and go to bed. You'll be fine. And I like, and she wasn't like, you know, that was just like, I was like, what? Like, I finally need some, like, I need some, like something like, you know, nurturing of some sort, like help me. And it was the best thing she ever did because it made me, you know, allowed me to stay in that place and go through it, you know? And if I didn't go through it, you don't, then you don't learn anything and you don't grow, you know? And, and of course, I always say that the, 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 the tree of life only ripens the fruit, which are oppor karmic opportunities to transform based on ones that you can handle. There's fruit way up on the top of that tree. I don't, I don't have a ladder for yet. I'm not even looking at them. They're not even ripe yet. But there's a low hanging fruit that I can handle and they're there because we can handle them and going through that pain that fear is sort of one way that I think people run away from it. Uh, look for ways to numb themselves through it as opposed to like you know manning up toughing up what well, is probably the wrong way to say it these days, but you know, you know put your boots on and you know and go through the pain i've had a lot of you oh my God your book is all about that every time you had a hardship you went through it and you came out more detached you know, well, more and free. I think it's, I think it's one of the reasons, you know, one of the um, archetypes that I resonated with relatively young was uh, a Vedic goddess named Kali. And Kali is one of the wildest goddesses that you could ever imagine. And, but one of the reasons that I thought, aha, she's, she's known as a goddess of transformation. And I knew that I had a lot of transforming to go through to get happy, to get free, that I had a lot of, you know, I kind of came in with a lot of stuff. You know, I like to say, use it as fuel and some of us get given rocket fuel. So maybe you could really fly, you know, think how far a rocket can fly. So, um, but one of the reasons that I think I really was enamored of this idea of this wild goddess with a sword and she wears this garland skull flower, skull flower, skull flower to represent the suffering and the beauty, right? The two things across from each other that you just said, right? That the bliss is right there. The beauty is right there. It's not separate from the skull. It's right. It's the skull is like the access point. Um, and so the, the fact that she was a warrior goddess was never lost on me. You know, when you think about like the mother Mary, who, like you said, in your suffering, in your moment of heartbreak, who would just hold you like a, like a sweet child. It's like, yeah, that's one way to be nurtured and comforted. But another way is to learn how to be that warrior that says, I am going to stand in the integrity of love and truth and reality, but I'm going to go through it so that I can get free of it and not save that wound for later. One of the things that I see people do so often is they experience a trauma and they just pull it in and keep it because it is, like you said, it's not the low hanging fruit right then. And I think in a lot of ways, there's wisdom around that. 
But I also think we come to a point in our life where we want to unpack those things. So we're more free, we're more transparent to our beauty and our love. And so I think that's part of the work is that, is that you have to be um, discerning enough to figure out when you can be mindful and present and kind with the wound that you just got, or when you need to just, you know, be protected, protective of it. And you'll do the work when it's safe, right? You have to be street smart or when you can transform that suffering in the moment of its infliction. That to me is, you know, it's like the skill in the matrix or something where they just would move with the bullets, right? They never even got hit by them because their skill was so high. And I think that's kind of the, that's some of the emotional skill and, and societal skill that we're looking for. We need tools that can teach us to turn to the side when the bullet comes, right? That we don't have to take direct hits, that we can, right? That, that we can just go, oh, okay, I have to be skillful enough in all of these things to dance, to kind of dance with life instead of be so beat up by it. <laughs> I think also along those same lines, I think is that you don't have to, you know, there's one thing is to have the awareness of how I'm reacting to, you know, to, you know, a spouse or a partner or a family member. And, and then you have this regular reaction, you push them away, because we do that a lot with our families. But then we have this awareness of like, you know, I know I'm doing this thing, and it's not right, you have a feeling of pinch in your heart, like why I'm doing that. Mm -hmm. And right in that space, you have that opportunity to realize that I have an opportunity to take action based on love and compassion, understanding why, you know, my spouse is this or that way. And that, and, and that, you know, I have compassion and understanding, and therefore, I don't have to react, I can take action based on something more real, which is like you said, like your love and the truth and the kindness, and take action that way. But I think that there's some permission in the gap to go and be a jerk a few more times and bang your head against the wall and do the same dumb thing again and again and again. But every time you do it, you do it with a little bit more awareness. You know, you go, oh yeah, that didn't feel so good. And then one day door number two starts to become like there's a doorknob appears and you can actually walk through that other door and go, I'm just gonna love them. You know, I had one guy told me, he goes, you want me to love my mother, right? And I said, yeah and he goes you don't know my mother if i loved her she'd move in with me and i have to be mean to her i have to push her away i'm going like really you know so a lot of us do that because we're trying to manipulate them to be the way we want them to be to make us feel safe and secure so it's all about like you said it's all about that safety we're just trying to feel safe in our skin right Mm -hmm. but allowing yourself to be safe is also allowing yourself to be that jerk a couple of times, allowing the awareness to grow. And then you realize you have enough safety and enough gumption and ability to go, I'm going to take a leap of faith here. And I'm just going to give that person a big old hug and love them for all their flaws and all their whatever they do that I don't like. You know what I mean? It's radical. Yeah. And then you're you're in. Yeah, then you're in the matrix, right? Now you're in, now you're in control of the game, you know, and uh, it's a you know the bug. I want you to comment on this too, which is you know the first part of the Bhagavad Gita is all about you know establish being, perform action, come from your heart, be loving. But the second half is all about don't be attached to the fruits of your action and be detached, right? So so how is it that what are some tricks because we're all attached to that i want you know i'm going to manipulate you because i want you to be that way so therefore you don't hurt me again you know and i don't have to feel that so i so i manipulate you right so it's obviously you know i'm engaging in behavior based on what i think you're doing um which isn't me doing me it's me doing a version of them that isn't them so nobody's interacting with anybody real so we don't even it's like weird like that's how most of us live our lives communicating in this kind of way dysfunctional way that nobody feels safe around anybody because we're engaging in behavior based on the armor that they have and they're based on behavior based on armor we have and we're like who are we so you're saying let's, let's slow this thing down mm-hmm. let's widen up this gap and let's take some action to be loved but part of me is still attached to that outcome so i wonder if you could 
share with us some some tips, some skills, some exercises about the whole because your whole thing was detachment. You know, I'm sure you have some some exercises, something we could do to not be attached to, you know. Well, actually, one of the strongest things, this is kind of wild to me. This is where the teachings start to get really wild, is that one of the wilder things is that compassion, I think, is one of the strongest tools there. Because like what you just said, we don't go just from, you know, having angry reactions to suddenly not having them. We go through this process of, of feeling all of it and trying to stifle it or just change one tiny thing where we don't blow up back to the other person. And we mess it up sometimes. Our humanity is going to be all over. You know, we're messy. We're human in all of it. And, and being able to embrace the mess of being human requires compassion. It requires you know, the ability to be imperfect in it and to make mistakes and, and, you know, at some point, hopefully even find laughter and joy about, you know, how, wh how, what a ridiculous choice you just made, right? But to do it not in a derisive way, but in a joyful way that says, oh yeah, I was a real idiot. I really did do that. I'm really sorry. You know, I screwed that up completely. Um, I know I hurt you and I hurt myself and I'm really sorry, you know, so those are some of the skills. I think compassion for yourself when you make the mistakes, yeah. um, that ability to break apart shame, right? When you make a mistake, one of the, one of the things you could choose is shame, right? Is to make yourself feel horrible about yourself. But if you can open it and talk about it and apologize, well, another tool, a really good apology is an amazing gift to both people it's an amazing gift to the person apologizing even more than to the person getting apologized to just that ability to say oh yeah i am human and flawed and a, a perpetual work in progress and that gives the permission in the gap is that kindness towards yourself to say if i need permission to stay in the gap for a while while I'm learning and growing, I'm not going to ever do this perfectly. So I'm going to have to have a relationship with the gap. I have to be able to be good with having made the mistake and, and revealing the flaw and exposing it to that sunlight of love to be able to really say, yeah, this is, this is hard. This kind of vulnerability is difficult, but it's, it's where, it's like the birthplace of power, of authentic power, is when I can be imperfect and vulnerable and messy and not choose shame and not choose blame, but actually choose growth and evolution. And that means compassion. That means I have to be kind to both parties. It's not, kindness isn't just lived outside of us. It's lived inside of us, maybe even more so. I mean, think about how, like you might get to a point in this growth process where you stop lashing out at people verbally or physically, but you might still lash in on yourself with what, you know, you might, you might really criticize yourself. And so those are those layers of subtlety, right? Of, of kind of healing the obvious and then getting into those subtle layers where you start to go, oh, okay, while I'm growing through this, if I can't have compassion for myself, I'm not going to get that far. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think people feel really, you know, there's layers and layers of feeling bad about themselves because they weren't good enough, pretty enough, tall enough, smart enough, anything enough. And we all have versions of that. There's no doubt. Um, taking, looking at some low hanging fruit for a second, let's just take the person who's like, they live a pretty good life. Their life is pretty good. They've got a relationship with their, you know, partner, spouse, whatever. They've got a family. They're going through the motions day to day. Boom, 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 boom. You're an urban yogi. You, you, you see that every day. People coming for yoga classes and they're living their life and they're doing pretty well. <clears throat> Everything's okay, you know, for the most part. I mean, obviously we wish the world was better, but in a little bubble there, everything's fine. How do you recognize where the opportunities for transformation, you know, exist 
if your life is like living, you know, the modern life, pretty good, everything's successful, fairly affluent, have enough money, take care of this and that, you know, why change it? I have a picket fence. I have everything that I need. Like, what's to change? Like, how is it that people would have the awareness of opportunity for growth to, to jump on that spiritual train that, that, that might actually exist, but, you know, but maybe not really, we go, maybe we were a tourist on that train, but we're not actually a passenger, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just wonder how people can like realize, wow, I'm living my life. It's great. But here are the things that I could be looking out for that would actually, you know, help me find a level of joy and contentment that I never even knew existed, I guess, is my question. I love that question because I think there, there is a lot of opportunity to kind of stay in the status quo yeah. of where you are, right? And just kind of say, no, this is good enough. This is, I'm happy enough. Um, I do think that, uh, <laughs> I do think that the, 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 the image of the low hanging fruit, I do think that there is opportunity in that because Typically, I see people that feel like, look, I don't really have anything that painful in my life. I'm doing okay. It may sound pessimistic to say, oh, it's going to come, but it <laughs> is going to come. You know, yeah. it is that there, all of us experience heartbreak, every single one of us. And, you know, sometimes people will ask me, well, what should I be working on? Like what thing in my life, if things are okay, what should I be working on? And I, I often reply and say, well, what's the thing that hurts the most right now? If you're willing to look at it, there's some, there's some content there for you. Like, what's the thing that brings you, you know, we like to say, what's the thing that brings you the most joy and the most satisfaction, the most love, very valid way to go about your spiritual work. But if you can't find it there, flip it on its head and say, where, where's the, what's the cause of the most suffering or the most dissatisfaction in my life right now? And can I dig a little deeper there? Like if I want a deeper life, I have to be willing to dig a little deeper. I have to be willing to show up and do a little deeper work. And willingness is definitely um, a power tool in your own evolution, in your own spiritual practice to say, if I want to feel love deeply, I've got to excavate love deep within mm -hmm. myself. I have to be interested in it enough to do that inner work, to really heal my innermost heart so I can access it more fully. Um, and, you know, I guess inspiration could be part of that conversation. Like how, how do people get inspired? How do they, John? How do people get inspired to do that work? Yeah, I think you, you, you could have hit the nail on the head. I think there's two ways. One is through the pain, mm -hmm. through discomfort. And it could be as simple as like, you know, I come home from yoga class and my husband is sitting on the couch, drinking a beer, watching the game, yeah. you know, and, you know, and Not connecting I, with me, I need connected. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, just in this yoga thing. And, you know, I've got Swami Jayadevi as my guru and, you know, and I come home and he's on the couch drinking a beer. Like he's, we're just not on different, we're on different paths, you know, we're on different, like yeah. he's just not going to ever get it. You know what I mean? And I think right there is a huge opportunity, right? Because when you walk into that room and you walk by him to, to take a shower after yoga class, you really have to say anything, but your the energy, the, 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 the photons that you're releasing are making him feel like, you know, like, like this, you know, down like, into the oh, couch. you know, hiding the beer and, you know, you know, turning the volume down quick, quietly, trying to act like I'm not doing anything wrong. Right. But he feels that. And mm -hmm. that impression, it's your emotional footprint is so critical that we become aware of our emotional footprint. When we walk into a room, are we inviting? Are we judging? And if he feels judged, then you go take your shower, you come out. And then you wonder, like, he's not really interacting, he's not really connecting. Well, you just crushed him, you know, because he felt judged by drinking that beer. What would you lose by actually coming into the room and, 
and grabbing a beer or whatever and sitting on the couch or at least just sitting on the couch and watching the game with him and and just being there with him I think most people they just want to feel loved right they all want that's all we want we want to feel loved so if you go and sit down instead of making you feel wrong and you make him feel loved there is an opportunity there for transformation for you and for him all of a sudden he's feeling safe opening his heart to that feeling you're taking a risk to go through your judgment of how he should be right so you're going through that so you're feeling he's feeling the real version of you which is underneath all of what i should be like i'm actually feeling her for a change and now we have this thing called communion it's a true transformational opportunity to really grow and accept and that it's okay that he watches the game and maybe you'll learn about the game or or whatever maybe he just puts it on pause and you have a conversation about the other class and then you go finish your shower and and you connect you know but it's like that instant judgment that instant that we judge is an instant for opportunity and that's where and that's what i wanted to ask you like the this, the, the breath i want you to explain how because that happens so fast you walk into the house boom judge boom it's over and he feels bad you feel Ugh. and now the, the the relationship is like separate you know but in that breath how do you use the breath to sort of slow all that down widen the gap and give you more of an opportunity not that you have to take every opportunity and ripe take every fruit off the tree it's ripe a lot of them just fall on the ground and rot you know that's okay but how do you take advantage of that with the breath how do you use the breath just like how, how can that that person walks in from yoga class and there he is sitting there how do i use the breath to to transform some underlying mental construct that i have that sitting on the couch watching the game is a bad thing well that's exactly the thing because like what we just said about if you're if you're not looking at okay like the yoga class is bringing you joy and you're feeling all these things but where's the dissatisfaction and as soon as you walked in and saw your husband with that remote and the bag of chips there it was right and that's the moment that's where the gap has to happen because the reality is is the yogi left their heart doesn't matter what the husband was doing I closed my heart as soon as I judged him for what he's doing my heart just closed I just left all the stuff I got out of that yoga class back there on the mat because all of a sudden bang now my heart's closed to him and I'm not living this open-hearted joyful life I'm rolling my eyes thinking oh my god I can't believe he's still watching that or whatever's yeah, happening yeah. and so that's the moment that the breath can change that one good breath of awareness if you can stop when you walk in and you feel that judgment and you let yourself feel it right that's that thing about changing your relationship with your feelings and with your suffering and even with your joy you stand there and you go mm, yep that is just making me mad right now. I am mad at him instantly just because of what he's doing. Can I make a different choice? Can I just, yeah, breath of awareness. What does that mean? What does awareness mean in that moment? Like, what would it be like if I just talk myself into sitting next to him for three minutes? Maybe I have a three minute limit for watching this show, right? But I'm just going to go slide in next to him and say, you know, I hope your day was good. I just, you know, I'm just going to love on you for a minute. And then I'm going to go about my shower and my day. I'm going to go do me because I'm not that interested in the show or whatever. You know, you got to always negotiate those things. But I think the real moment is the moment of a heart closing. You can't really yeah. judge somebody else and keep your heart open at the same time. It's almost impossible. I think it's easier to do it that way because I think we all bump into that, you know, whether, you know, we were at Home Depot yesterday buying some flowers, you know, and and uh, there were two lines, right? And and one line was a lady checking people out. Your line was the automatic line, and I was second on the line from the automatic line. And I went and did my thing. And the lady on the other line, the the cashier was taking forever, so I just I didn't even know she was there. And then and I'm checking out. I hear her in the background <laughs> because she was upset that my line went faster because it was a self checkout and the lady was she was like venting and I and I just looked at her and I just looked at her because now she was like behind she went to my line she's behind me I just looked at her and I smiled I said isn't that how life can be sometimes you know I just smiled at her because she was talking to me and I didn't like cut line or anything she's like there should be just one line she's going off and on and I was like this life can be sometimes I just smiled at her she was like oh yeah you know 
but it was just an opportunity to just like, really, you're going to get upset buying flowers on a line of Home Depot? Like, that's where we're really going to go there? Like, why? You know? And I just an opportunity for we, but my point there is that we all bump into that in our life every single day. And there's opportunities for us to go compassion, right? There's compassion. That lady's freaked out for a reason that obviously logically doesn't, it, it's like, no, we don't need to do that. It's not going to help you, you know? But I think and, that our, I think, our resiliency is really low right now. Yeah. Even like the people you're saying, no, everybody, you know, somebody living their nice life being okay. It's like, yeah. And your resiliency is lower than it may have ever been just because of our experience in the world these days. And yeah. so I think that when our, when our resiliency thins out, our emotional maturity thins out as well. And then we end up being angry at some guy in front of us at Home Depot, which makes no sense, right? Like you're going to use up all your angry chits on yeah. somebody who's buying flowers in front of you. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that we need the tools, right? That we need to kind of hone in and say, okay, there are simple tools. We can all use them and do them and just use these different reminders of yoga or of Ayurveda or of these you know, this toolkit in the book to say, how do you do this in those everyday moments when you want to make a different choice, but you're not sure yet how to? Yeah, reminders, you know, I think that's a great word. And the book is full of them, full of practices, full of strategies, you know, and I think, you know, maybe in our crazy world with all this polit political unrest on every side you can imagine, and people acting like, you know, seemingly immature, it seems, you know, maybe that's going to help us because when we see, you know, I think a lot of times we see things that are happening in the world that are so cringy, right? You're going, oh God, you know, why would you do that? Why would you invade an entire country and kill all these people? Like, that's so cringy, right? Why would you flat out lie in public and you're a political person, whatever, you know what I mean? Why would you, all these things and regular people would look at that and go, that's not how we should be. Some people are going, oh, I'm going to be like that because they can be like that. But I think the bigger wave of opportunity is, you know, we model behavior and when we're children, but when we're adults, we have to become, right? We have to be the example. Mm -hmm. And I think that when you see the dirt, don't you want to purify it? Isn't that like a Kali thing? Isn't that what Kali does? Yes, absolutely. You know, that's to me, the principles of Ayurveda and the principles of yoga is to say, how do I purify this, this experience, this vehicle, this mind, this heart, so that there, so that I'm more, a more clear vessel of consciousness, really, you know, to say, how can I be, I can only I can, I can say this because I've experienced it in myself, but I can, I can, I see it in other people and I can only hope it for the world that the more we do the work of cleaning up the, the rage and the anger and the negativity and the, the obvious stuff, um, you know, the violence, those kind of things, the more the more clear vessel we are for light and love and consciousness and kindness um, and those are the things that, you know, I think to heal the world, we have to heal ourselves. And I think to heal ourselves, we ultimately have to heal the world. I think it's both directions. But I do think doing our inner work has an impact on the world because it's one less person that's violent and angry and frustrated in the world. Um, I think yeah. our inner work matters even when the world is in so much chaos. Yeah. And what we can do is one heart at a time, what's right in front of us, you know, you walk into a room and there's your husband, whatever opportunity exists, opportunities exist for us to choose love and kindness over that judgment. And I think that your book goes through so many, you can't, you can't read this book and not go, oh, wow, that was me. That was me. That was me. That was me. And then you give exercises and guided meditations to help people go through that and transform. So I couldn't, um, I can't recommend this book highly enough. It's a great, great read. It's so many stories. I love stories, you know, stories are just, 
you just can't put the book down. Some of these stories are amazing about, you know, some of the stuff you've been through. Um, so please pick up this book. It's called Embodied by Swami, uh, Swami Jayadevi. Um, she runs the, um, <clears throat> the Kashi Yoga Center in Atlanta. Um, please check her out. Swami Jayadevi, so good to see you and talk to you and connect with you. You know, this, I know you and I could talk for a long time, a lot longer than this, but I think we, uh, we solve most of the world's problems here in this short bit of time we had together. And uh, I hope we, we, we talk again soon. And thank you so this. much for coming. Thank you. Thank you. This recording is brought to you by Life Spa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at lifespa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.